So we are going to begin the year looking at the different parts of the Lord's Prayer that he gave to his disciples, including us. And this is kind of a, a pattern prayer that we are to generally follow in our prayer lives according to Jesus. And so we're going to begin looking at the first line of that prayer today. And so we're talking about prayer as worship today, based on Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. I read a book a long time ago by a pastor named Donald Whitney. He pastored for many years in Chicago. Then he became a seminary professor. I think he still is. But in the book, he relates a story about his childhood. On his 10th birthday, they had a big birthday party. He invited eight of his best friends to come to his house, and they came over right after school. They came to his house, and he said, we played basketball, we played football until it was time to eat, and then my dad grilled out hamburgers and hot dogs while my mom was finishing up the birthday cake, and we feasted, and then we had cake, and we celebrated, and he said then, after dinner, we all loaded into a couple of, uh, of station wagons and went to the hottest ticket in town, the high school basketball game, where they could cheer on their, their high school heroes at the game. And he said, when we got out and walked up, paying for the tickets, he said, it was one of those simple but golden moments in life. The picture in my mind was the perfect ending to a 10-year-old boy's perfect birthday. Four friends on one side, four friends on the other. I would sit in the middle while we munched popcorn, punched each other, and cheered on our high school heroes. As we went inside, he says, I remember feeling happier than Jimmy Stewart in the closing scene of It's a Wonderful Life. And then the golden moment was shattered. Once in the gym, all of my friends scattered, and I never saw them again the rest of the night. No thank you, no gratitude, no it's been fun, but I'm going to go sit somewhere else. So he said, I spent the rest of my 10th birthday in the bleachers by myself, growing old alone. <laughs> Isn't that a buzzkill? What a way to start off the new year, right? But he's a pastor now. He's grown up. And so at the end of this story in the book, he says, I wonder if we sometimes treat God that way in worship. I mean, he's supposed to be central. He's supposed to be the guest of honor. But sometimes our minds wander and we, we hardly give God a thought. Well, that's why we're starting out the year focusing on God and his worthiness to be worshipped and his centrality in the Christian life. So glad you're here with us to start the new year that way today. want to welcome you who are worshipping online uh, those of you at Olmsted Falls campus, those of you at Lorraine Correctional, and really from all over the world, we have people joining us to worship. So glad you're with us as well. So look at your notes, and in the introduction, Jesus here is inviting us to go deeper into the adventure of prayer. And one of the cool things about prayer is it's the ultimate win-win. When we pray genuinely, sincerely, when we pray in the Spirit, when we pray in a way that the Bible specifies, we get blessed, we get what we need, we pray down the blessing, but God is also glorified and honored. Look at Psalm 50, verse 15. Call on me in the day of trouble, God invites us, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. 
The, the very act of, of answering our prayer and providing what we need brings honor and glory to God. So we get the gifts and God gets the glory. So prayer is the ultimate win-win in the Christian life. The, this prayer begins with kind of a preface. And before Jesus goes on to talk about what we should pray for, how we should pray, he talks about the who. He focuses on the one that we pray to whenever we go to prayer. And so he begins with the simple term, our Father. And we see that today, and we've grown up praying this prayer, many of us, and we're so used to this. We miss how revolutionary, how shocking this would have been to Jewish ears in the first century. Because you read the whole Old Testament, and it very, very rarely refers to God as Father. In fact, the name of God is treated as so sacred in the Old Testament. Jews were very hesitant to take that name, Yahweh, upon their lips. So there were lots of other ways they referred to God, but rarely did they refer to God as Father. And nobody ever prayed, no Jew would ever pray, my Father. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, something different happens. Over 60 times, Jesus addresses God as Father, or my Father, or the Father. And because their native tongue was, was Aramaic, many times Jesus would pray to the Father with that term Abba, which we think of as Dad, or da it's an affectionate, familiar term that was often on the lips of Jesus when he prayed to his Father. And so he turns to his disciples and he says, this is how you ought to pray. You ought to address God and approach God. Remember, he is your father. He is your loving father. Um, I, I don't know about those of you who are married who have kids, but we have like insider kind of names, pet names for our kids and what they call us. And so to this day, my grown kids, one of my sons, when we're together or even if we're Zooming or something like that, he'll he'll address me tenderly as fatty daddy or, or pops. And he's the only one who does that. And uh, I'd prefer to keep it that way, okay, <laughs> just, just between you and me. But I gave them kind of funny nicknames. They're terms of endearment. And here Jesus is pulling back the curtain on our Father in heaven. It says, you, you can call him daddy. You can call him dad. You can call him Abba. And, and he's pointing to the affection and the love and the grace of God, the one that we've prayed. By the way, the one that we pray to, that's probably the most important thing about prayer. And the more you understand the one you're praying to, I think the more inclined you're going to be to approach him in prayer. I, I also realize today that many of us did not have warm, affectionate relationships with a, an earthly father, which kind of spoiled the term for us. But I want you to remember something. Jesus is the perfect physical representation of what the father was like. And if you look at how Jesus related to people in the Gospels, that's going to go a long way toward rehabilitating that term father. read a book not too long ago where the pastor starts out like this. He says, I, I have two new heroes in my life. And then he went on to talk about this couple that he was meeting, middle-aged couple named Warren and Lil. 
And he said, I met them when they were pushing a wheelchair that had their adult daughter in it. And I listened to their story. Early in their marriage, they decided that they would adopt a couple of kids. And as they became familiar with the family services system, they learned that there were kids in the system that nobody wanted. So they went to the local adoption agency and they asked for the kids with the most pronounced disabilities, the most traumatic histories, and the most hopeless futures. They asked if they could have the kids nobody wanted. And over the past 30 years or so, Warren and Lil have raised over 20 adopted children, raising a couple of biological kids alongside their adopted kids. And when they got to this point in the story, they reached down and patted the shoulder of their daughter and said, this is Crystal. She's 27 years old, and, uh, but she will be about six months old developmental, developmentally for the rest of her life. She can't talk or walk or move or feed herself or do anything on her own. She will be like this, totally dependent on us until the day she dies. And we love her so much. Our family and us, we can't imagine life without her. She makes everything so much better. That's a loving father. And you know, that's a pale reflection of the loving, compassionate, gracious heart of your heavenly father and my heavenly father. Who would not want to draw near and spend lots of time talking to a father like that? And because of that, this is why the Bible refers to the place where we approach him in prayer. And I love this term. Where do we go to approach him in prayer? We draw near to the throne of grace. Not the throne of condemnation or criticism or judginess. Or, no, we draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted and tested in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So let us then approach the throne of grace. How? With confidence, with assurance. And what will we receive if we do so that we'll receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need? Prayer is approaching the most affectionate, the most warm, the most welcoming embrace in the world with the person who loves us more deeply than anybody else could ever love us. And we can commune with him in the coffee shop of our own soul, sharing our life with him in praise and petition and thanksgiving in request. And that's why Jesus dropped these little promises to his disciples, promises like Matthew 7, 11. If you guys, even though you're knuckleheads, even though, even though you're evil is the word Jesus used, if you guys who are evil know how to give good gifts, good gifts to your children, how much more will your perfectly loving Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I have a new favorite author named Dane Ortland, and this is what he says about the, the loving heart of God. He says, God is love. Love defines who he is most deeply. Ultimate reality is not cold, dark, blank, endless space. Ultimate reality 
is an eternal fountain of endless, unquenchable, unconditional love. The love of God is what we feed on our whole lives long, wading ever more deeply into this endless ocean. So the most stable reality at the heart of the universe is the love of God and of Christ. And so this should be an encouragement. When you pray, you're praying to your Father who knows all about you and yet loves you with an infinite, passionate, undying love. And so that's who we draw near to in prayer. But it actually gets better than that because Jesus goes on then and he uses this kind of weird term. He says, when you pray, remember you're praying to our Father in the heavens, literally. He says, we pray to our Father, pray to your Father who is in the heavens. And that is pointing to his greatness, his transcendence, his, his mind, mind-blowing infinity, his infinite love, his infinite power. So that's who we're also praying to. Now, those, those two don't seem to go together too well. Don't, don't those, seem, those two seem a little bit contradictory? He's our affectionate daddy in heaven, but he's also the one who is infinitely powerful, infinitely great. There, there's almost a funny scene in the Old Testament when King Solomon succeeded David and came to the throne and they raised the money and they built this spectacular, amazing temple in Jerusalem, um, overlaid with gold, one of the wonders of the ancient world, gleaming in the sun, the gold on top of everything. And they had a huge kind of uh, celebration to inaugurate the beginning of the temple. And they, they remember they offered gazillions of sacrifices and there was worship and there was praise. And then Solomon got up and he prayed this long prayer inviting God to, to come and dwell among the people of Israel and even reach people all around the world. And in the middle of the prayer, 1 Kings 8.27, Solomon it's almost as if Solomon sort of has a moment of clarity and says, wait a minute, Lord. And this is what he says, but will God really dwell on the earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. It's almost as if Solomon kind of realized what he was praying. He says, wait a second, Lord, who, who are we kidding here, Right? You, you are the infinite God. You spoke worlds. You spoke the universe into existence. You're big beyond comprehension. And yet that visible representation of the presence of God came down and dwelt in that holy of holy. And that's where people would meet God during the Old Testament times. But God is both. God is both tender, affectionate, warm, loving, patient, attentive, and he's also infinitely great beyond imagination. It seems contradictory, but it's not. The loving Father with whom we have, have, to, have to do is both merciful and majestic. He's both tender and transcendent. He's both affectionate and infinite. He's good and he is great at the same time and the same person. And you know what that means? How blessed 
are the people whose God is the Lord. This is our God. This is our Heavenly Father. We're always welcome in his presence. But he's scary big. He's infinite big. That means not only is he able to do far beyond what we ask, but, but he delights to because he's the Father who loves us. We are so blessed. Look at Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask, which is good enough in itself, but he's able to do far more than we could ever imagine according to his power that is at work where? Within us. This is our God, loving Father and infinitely power, able to do far beyond all that we ask or even imagine. Are we not blessed people? Is it just me? Are we not blessed people? This is our God who has given himself to us. And he invites us to come into the throne of grace by the shed blood of Jesus, which took away our sin, took away our guilt, took away our shame. And we come into his presence clean because of that finished work of Jesus. He welcomes us to the throne of grace. And then he begins to talk about how we are to pray. He explains who we're praying to, but then he says, this is how you should pray. And this is such a radically God-centered prayer. The first three things we are told to pray all have to do with God, with, with the things that are on God's heart, his, his name, his fame, uh, his, his priorities, um, his passions, the things that he cares most deeply about. Jesus encourage us, encourages us to pray for those things. And the first thing is pray this, pray that God's name would be hallowed. Now, that's not a word we use. It wasn't mean for God's name to be hallowed. It means for God and his name to be treated as sacred, for God to be honored and respected and reverenced and worshiped and loved as he deserves. This is really a, an evangelistic missionary prayer when you think about it. It's praying that God's name would be hallowed all over the earth by everybody, wherever they live. In fact, Jesus may have had in mind this prayer in the Old Testament. Psalm 67, which is a missionary prayer, God's people in the Old Testament prayed like this, may the peoples praise you. May all the peoples praise you. And in a sense, Jesus is giving a variation on that. You need to pray that people all over the world, regardless of their religion, race, creed, whatever, God is such a majestic, great, infinite, beautiful God. He is the one God. He, he is worthy of being praised and worshipped and esteemed by everyone all over the world. This is a prayer that's desperately needed today. We need to keep praying this in our day. You know why? Do you realize almost 40 people on planet Earth this morning, almost 40%, I'm sorry, almost 40% of the people on planet Earth today have not yet once heard the name of Jesus. It's almost 40%. Not only have they never heard about Jesus and what he has done for them, but nobody around them knows about Jesus. No Bibles are available. They can't go online to a worship service like this. Almost 40% still cannot 
hallow God's name because they've never really heard about him. A couple years ago, I was at a conference, and I heard the testimony of a guy who was a pastor um, in a Middle Eastern country. He had grown up there in the majority religion. And when he was in, in his early 20s, God touched his heart. God began to stir in his heart a desire to investigate this Christian God. And so he was looking for a New Testament, and he could not find one. He searched everywhere he knew how. It's not like you can go to the store. You can't go to a Walmart there and buy one. They're just, they're not there. They're not available. You know how long it took him to find a New Testament? Seven years he searched longingly, searched for a New Testament. Finally, through a coincidence, an acquaintance of his had a New Testament. He read it. He devoured it. He put his faith in Jesus. Today, he's the pastor of the largest church in that Middle Eastern country. 300 people, largest church in that country. So we need to keep praying this way. Lord, may your name be hallowed all over this broken and bleeding world. May people come to know you and reverence you. And there's one other thing we could say about this prayer. The, these Actually, these first three requests in the prayer. These, this kind of praying reflects the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You, you realize that when we become born-again believers, the Holy Spirit invades our lives. And what we know about the Trinity is the three persons of the Trinity love each other intensely. Are not, they're continuously pouring love into each other's hearts. So when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, Paul says... Um, God has poured his Holy Spirit into our hearts by whom, through whom, we cry out, what? Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit works and generates in our hearts a deep love for the Father, a deep love for Jesus, and a sensitivity to their passions. Their Prayer is not really talking God into doing my will. It doesn't, it doesn't really work that way. Prayer, when we engage with our Abba Father in prayer, he changes us and he works in us a sensitivity to him and what he desires and what he's passionate about. So this kind of prayer reflects that decentering of our egos that takes place gradually as we follow Jesus and grow in grace so that our attitude more and more in prayer becomes worship, thanksgiving, and praying for the things that glorify and please him more than for what we want. And so, as we engage our Abba Father in prayer, we become more passionate about glorifying him. We, we feel more deeply that it, it's an outrage that God is not recognized and known and worshiped and respected and esteemed for who he is and all he has done for us through Jesus. About a year ago, I was watching a doc. I'm a sucker for documentaries. I love history. I was watching a documentary, and they were talking about the, uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, and they began to talk about the forgotten hero of the Pearl Harbor attack. And they began to talk about a, a sailor named Joe George. Here's a, we have a picture here. 
On the morning of the attack, Joe George was a 26-year-old sailor, and he was attached to the USS Vestal. If you've ever been to the U.S. Arizona Memorial, the Vestal was, was uh, closer to the shore. It was the maintenance ship that supplied the Arizona. And on the morning of the attack, you, you remember Arizona took a direct hit from a bomb. There's this massive explosion that tore through the ship. 1,100 sailors died that morning. And shortly after that bomb exploded on the Arizona, Joe George, on the deck of the vessel, he noticed six wounded, burned sailors on the tower of the USS Arizona, maybe the last six guys alive on that ship. He disobeyed a direct order to cut the vessel loose from the Arizona, which was doomed, and he took the knotted up end of a heavy rope and he threw it 70 feet on to that, that tower. And those six sailors were able to, to catch it tie a rope, and then over 70 feet of a raging oil fire in the water between the ships, all six of those sailors were able to climb hand over hand to safety. Now, three weeks later, one of those sailors was so badly burned that he died. But the other five sailors lived out their lives, and for the first several decades after this happened, they didn't even know the name of the guy that had saved them. But soon they began lobbying the, the Navy to recognize this man, to recognize his heroism, to, to honor him, to provide some kind of medal. And it took literally decades for that to happen. In fact, Joe George died in 1997, but 20 years after his death, in December of 2017, three of the surviving sailors were able to attend a ceremony at the USS Arizona Memorial where Joe George's one surviving daughter was there and she accepted on his behalf a posthumously awarded bronze star for valor 70 years later. And as I was watching this, the granddaughter of one of those five sailors that was saved that day was giving this speech. And I got so blubber, I couldn't hold back the tears. But at one point in her speech, she spoke to the daughter, the one surviving daughter of Joe George. And she, she said, Joanne, without your father's intervention, myself and four generations would not be here today. So we honor your father's heroism on that day. And I'm bawling and I'm telling Kristen what, and I'm just, the tears are just flow is so moving. You can look it up on YouTube. But then the thought occurred to me, you know, Joe George deserved to be honored and recognized. That name of Joe George deserved to be honored for what he did that day. But isn't there another name and another one that is even more worthy, who made a far greater sacrifice, paid a far greater price to rescue a far greater number of people from a far worse and more catastrophic fate than physical death? There is somebody who is far more deserving and it is far more slighted by people not 
knowing that name. And you know the name I'm talking about, the, the name that is above every name. And because he has saved us and brought us into his kingdom, we will add our voices to that eternal chorus, that new song that consists of these words, you, Lord Jesus, you are worthy because you were slaughtered and with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign with you forever. Is not Jesus infinitely worthy to be known by everybody so he can be trusted and loved and worshiped and reverenced for all eternity? So in this coming year, may his name be hallowed in your life and in my life and in our church and in our community and even among all the nations of the world. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do this day declare your worth, worthy, worthy, worthy of honor and blessing in glory. Are you, Lord Jesus, the lamb that was slain and is now reigning as the lion from the tribe of Judah? Lord, we give you our worship. We give you our praise. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us this year. Help us, Lord, in how we live each day to bring honor to you. Do it, we pray, for your sake and for your glory. Amen.